Ready? Yes. Cool. As I'll ever be. <laughs> Uh, hey everybody and welcome to the show this week my guest is uh, Nikki Zupanik who actually now you're a lawyer for the AS- ACLU I am a lawyer but my title is public policy director so I like to joke that I'm not a real lawyer for our team we have uh, plenty of other folks who do the real legwork of filing litigation and representing clients what I do is lobby mostly So you went, okay, let's back up. How did you end up in law school? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, I uh, had always dreamed of being a lawyer. Uh, It sounds awfully cheesy, but that really had been something that I had aspired to when I was younger. And um, after college, I started working for the California State Assembly, and I worked there for six years. And towards the end of my time there, my boss was termed out under California term limits laws. And as he was getting ready to leave and I started to think about what my next job would be, I started thinking more about going to law school. And for a while I had thought that school was not really for me. I was not the best student, I have to admit. (laughs) Don't worry, you're in good company. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) But I... I acknowledge that the people that I was working with in the legislature, those who had their law degrees, really did seem to have a leg up. You really do just have a better understanding of how the language of the law can be crafted to protect people and sometimes to hurt people. And I started to think that maybe that's the path that I should go down. I had an idea of what I could accomplish without a law degree and started to think I should see what more I can do with one. Hmm. So after my boss was turned out and I left work at the assembly, I went to law school, did that for three years, got my degree. And when I started law school, I had thought that I wanted to stay in public interest or go back to state government work, something along those lines. But somewhere in the intervening three years, (laughs) I ended up down a path that uh, had me at a really wonderful law firm in Sacramento. Um, But it just wasn't the right fit for me. I wasn't working on the issues that I cared most about. And I decided I wanted to go back into public interest or public advocacy. And that's how I found the job with the Montana ACLU. So the ACLU actually brought you up here? Or were you in Montana for something else? No, I was still living in California at the time that I found this job and uh, applied for it, uh, got the position, and moved to Montana. So how long have you been here? Uh, just under four years. Ah, that makes you Montana. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. More like four people. generations. No, then I people. might be able to I say. I would like to point out, most of those people that say, well, I'm a fourth generation Montana, and all four of the generations have lived out of the state and come back, and out of the state and come back, and it's like, eh, no. You've been here four years, you're a Montana. We'll oh. keep you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people do seem to... Um, to float away from Montana for a bit, but all seem to come back, huh? I think it says a lot about the state. It says Uh, a lot about how good it is to live here. Yeah, and and people have a lot of, there's nostalgia for it too, but then there's another part of it where it is, it's such a great place to live. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so much that goes on in the arts and in in research and everything that happens that you you kind of expect in a big city, and then there's also the great outdoors, which you can't get in New York. Exactly. You know, you have to drive upstate seven and a half hours away. Um, So yeah, there's a lot that goes on. Okay, so... You're a lawyer, but you don't work as a lawyer, but you work with a bunch of lawyers, and you work with a bunch of lawmakers, and you're not psychotic yet. <laughs> <laughs> not that you know of, or not that I'm willing to admit to. <laughs> so what's it been like working with the legislature? Because if you've only been here for four years, you had one fairly okay legislature to deal with, and then you had last legislature to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, last session was definitely tough. I could say the good news is that uh, my my work that's included in the Montana legislature, I've really benefited from how open legislators are to speaking with you and to meeting with you. In other states, people just don't have that access to their legislators. You don't have the ability to call up your legislator at home or to sit down and have coffee with him or her. In a lot of other states, legislators just aren't that open to taking the time to meet with people. So that's an advantage of a state of our size and having so many legislators represent a smaller number of people. Mm -hmm. They're willing to take the time to sit and meet with you. And also there usually is an air of civility. There usually is a sense that we are going to disagree on a lot of issues 
And especially, as you can imagine, as an ACLU lobbyist, I get a lot of no's. I get a lot of people who are going to be voting against us. But more often than not, I uh, am still treated with a good amount of respect and civility, even by people who disagree with us on every single issue that we're going to bring before them. The problem that really made the 2011 legislature very frustrating was that a lot of that civility that I had grown accustomed to just even in the one session before was lacking. It evaporated. It was gone. (laughs) It's a good word for it, evaporated. And it was really frustrating. And I I feel really privileged to do the work that I do. Um, If I get yelled out in a committee meeting, if I get cut short, if I get called a name, I can at least take solace in the fact that I saved one of our members from having to hear that. Or I saved a a woman who is standing up for her reproductive rights from having to hear that, or I saved a medical marijuana patient from having to hear that. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm usually pretty happy that it gets directed at me and that I have the privilege of representing people and that I can bear the brunt of that. But what really drove me crazy in the last session was that I saw that uh, hostility being displayed to everyday Montanans who took time out of their lives to drive over mountain passes, over icy roads, hundreds of miles to come and testify on one bill that just really meant a lot to them. And when they got to the committee, they were told, sorry, we don't have time to hear from you. Or they were treated with less respect than than they deserved. And that was really frustrating. It's one thing to disagree with someone, but it's another thing to treat them as if their time doesn't matter. Even worse, treat them as if their voice doesn't matter. So that was really frustrating during the last session. Yeah, and it's part of the reason that I have this show. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Have a microphone, we'll share. (laughs) Exactly. Well, part of it is that I think that, you know, that disdain and that dismissiveness that comes about, it comes from that they there were a lot of people that had no idea that there were people on the other side of the argument. They just saw that there was another side, there was this other side that they could dismiss because it didn't actually affect people. And uh, by putting a face to it on both sides, I think it's important that both sides recognize that there are people on the other side and you may disagree with them. You may have fundamental disagreements with them, but they're still people. That's a great way to put it. And that, carries over into any kind of advocacy work that we do. It's so important for people who are in positions of power to realize that you do know someone who is affected by this. You have a neighbor, you have a family member, you have a friend or a coworker who is being impacted and has a difference of opinion from you on a lot of these policy decisions that you're making. And you may go ahead and disagree with them. You may even go ahead and cast your vote against their position or against their interests. But you can't ignore them, and you can't treat them as if their interests don't matter. Right. So um, so you had the first session, then you had the last session, which hopefully was the last session of insanity. We don't want to go through that again. Uh, what's, let's, let's dive right in. What's it look like this upcoming election is going to be like for everybody? How do you see the races playing out? Well, the the best part of my job when it comes to election season is that the ACLU is nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we take no stance whatsoever in any candidate election, so I have the good fortune of being able to sit out a lot of <laughs> these campaigns. Of course, we watch them with a lot of interest. Uh, we're looking to see regardless of the letter behind someone's name, are they at least open to talking to us about the issues that we care about? And there are several things that we work on. It's probably no surprise ACLU has a pretty broad uh, mission. Our mission is to defend and preserve every individual liberty in the U.S. Constitution and state constitution. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of a lot. And uh, that, that means that we do have to do a little bit of triage during the session and try and focus on, on a couple of more narrow topics. What we're focusing on for the next session, I think, is going to be a lot of criminal justice reform work. We, yeah, we obviously oppose the death penalty, and we've been working for decades to repeal the death penalty. 
We also oppose the use of solitary confinement, especially when it comes to a juvenile in the prison or someone with a history of mental illness in the prison being placed into solitary confinement. We advocate for uh, defendants who are accused of a crime and can't afford an attorney to have a robust public defender system that's available to them. And we also think that there are better ways of handling uh, people who have committed a crime, better ways to handle those situations than just to lock them up in a prison. Um, so on each of those fronts... Oh no, you're going to make people cry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, it's, it's interesting that a lot of um, what seems to drive... <clears throat> Uh, some opinion on the area of criminal justice reform is this idea that anyone who commits a crime, they deserve whatever we, we give to them. If someone has committed a very uh, heinous murder, they deserve to die, and they deserve to die in any manner that, that we would want to put them through. If someone has committed a crime, they deserve to do the time, and whatever the conditions are in that prison, well... That's just what they deserve. <clears throat> Obviously, a lot of issues. <laughs> Obviously, a lot of things that we disagree about, all of that. But, but most importantly, I like to remind people that how we set up our criminal justice system says more about us and has more to do with us than it has to do with the people who have committed these crimes. The focus really should be on how do we want to deal with these situations? What can we live with? Can we live with a corrections officer being forced to put someone to death as part of his or her duties? Can we live with a prosecutor being forced to prosecute a capital case, knowing that that will eventually lead to the death of, of that inmate? Can we live with knowing that there are inmates in our prison who are attempting suicide, who are um, slowly going crazy because they are being kept in solitary confinement for a year at a time, two years at a time. I think people are really surprised that we have a solitary confinement program here in Montana that can keep an inmate in solitary for two years at a time. You think of solitary as being... Two years? Two years, yes. I know. I can't stand being without my phone for 20 minutes. I don't know how I would survive. And, and we're and talking about people being in an incredibly Spartan cell, no contact with others for 23 hours a day, 24 hours a day on the weekends. So for five hours during the week, people in solitary are allowed to step out of their cell and go into an enclosed cage outside. That's the only time that they have outside of their cell. Um, for many of those inmates, they are not allowed to um, call, write, or receive letters from family. That was certainly the case for a client that we had. We represented a young man who was placed in the Montana State Prison at the age of 16. He was in solitary for roughly a year. And during that time, had very little, I think, next to no contact with his family members whatsoever. 17-year-old, obviously gotten into some trouble with the law, but nothing too serious. And he was placed into solitary without any contact with his family members and with very little access to any educational programs, any ability to... Well, and, and at 17, you're taking somebody whose brain is still developing and you're depriving him of social interactions. And then you wonder why he's going to be a criminal forever. Okay, people, I'll give you a clue. <laughs> yes, it does not result in the best outcomes. No. And we can do so much better. Again, it's so much about us and not about what does the offender deserve? What sort of retribution do we want to pay on them? What sort of vengeance can we exact? It should be about what sort of outcomes do we want to have here in or, Montana. Or another question to ask would be, okay, how did we fail this person so miserably that this is where they ended up? How did our society drop the ball so badly that this is where they ended up? And that's a great point to bring up with our client. He had been uh, essentially a ward of the state for... Gosh, oh, so the state had created this entire problem. He had been in one institutional setting or another. Um, prior to, for 
a number of years prior to um, going to Montana State Prison. So yes, the state had essentially been overseeing his care for five, six, seven years. And they did such a years. lovely job he ended up in solitary for a year. Good going, Montana. Good going. Yeah. Um, see, you can't say that stuff. I get to be the one who gets to be the prick and says this. But that's literally one of the, I don't know why people would ever think that that's okay. I don't know why our foster system is in such disarray. I don't understand why our prison system is in such a mess. When all people have to do is literally stop, take a deep breath, and figure out how we can fix it instead of how we can stop them. Because stopping them isn't the answer. We want them to live. We don't want them to stop. That's called death. Mm-hmm. We want them to live. We want them to be productive members of our society. And in order to do that, we need to have a path for them to become that. That's exactly it. We can do so much better. We can spend our dollars so much better. We can be a more humane state. And we can just have better outcomes all around for the people that end up in these situations. And and for the, the victims involved, um, having a means for those inmates to be able to um, make some sort of meaningful redress for the harm that they've caused, uh, you know, adding in a restorative justice program, adding in reentry programs. These are things that, for whatever reason, aren't, aren't um, popular with a certain segment of legislators up at the session. No, they aren't popular with the Tea Party. They'd much rather, oh, you, you committed a crime, we have to cut off your hand now. Because they're from Iran. That's what I would like to point out. The Tea Party is from Iran. (laughs) Much more of a focus on, yes, uh, perhaps the the retribution part of what they think should be a part of a criminal justice system rather than the rehabilitation and moving forward part of it that we'd like to see. Right. And what's what's funny is that the way the country was founded and the way our criminal justice system was originally brought into play was it was about restitution and reformation. It was mm-hmm. not about revenge. Mm-hmm. And um, we have a lot of people right now that are very much about, it's an eye for an eye. And it's like, well, that's going to make a lot of us wearing jaunty eye patches, I would <laughs> yeah. like to say. Um, I'll yeah. probably be walking around blind because I do open my mouth a lot. But, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the, I remember once, and this was when I was a kid, somebody pointed out that everybody should be a card-carrying member of the American Civil Liberties Union simply because civil uh, liberties are something that we all have. And I always think it's interesting when um, something comes up that is uh, a core value of the right that the ACLU gets to defend. Mm-hmm. And, and not because I don't think they should defend it. I think it's awesome that they do get defended. I think it puts the right who's always railing against the ACLU as an organization in this awkward position of going, mm, except for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, a great example that people like to bring up is a few years ago when Rush Limbaugh was being prosecuted for doctor shopping. And um, the state of Florida was investigating. They wanted access to some of his medical records. Well, privacy is a core fundamental value that the Mm -hmm. ACLU defends. And we don't think it's right for law enforcement to be able to go on a fishing expedition and to snoop into your medical records without a really good reason. And the state of Florida just hadn't met that bar. So we filed a brief in support of Mr. Limbaugh's position to keep his medical records private. I don't know that Mr. Limbaugh ever sent us a thank you note or... (laughs) (laughs) No, he probably had to drink a little bit because he's like, oh, the ACLU's on my side. It's the end of the world. Yeah, probably no mini muffin basket headed over to the (laughs) ACLU of Florida's offices for that one. But... Well, uh, Rush, if you're listening, write the card. (laughs) It wouldn't take that much. But uh, regardless of whether you're willing to thank us or not, or whether you were on our side on this position uh, before, we take these positions really seriously. It doesn't matter whose rights are being trampled. We're there to stand up for everyone's. So whether it's Mr. Limbaugh, who disagrees with us on nearly everything else that we talk about, or, or anyone else in this state or in the United States who has their individual liberties curtailed, we'll be there. We'll do our best to be there. We're a little busy, as you can imagine, but yeah, we'll do a, our best to be there's there. There's a lot going on. So speaking of things that you're busy with, mm-hmm. um, you've got a lot going on here in Montana. You've got a suit in front of the Supreme Court that we still haven't gotten a decision on. Tick, tick, tick. Any news on that? No, none. Do you want to tell people about it? Yes, I really do. So two years ago, we filed a lawsuit on behalf of six same-sex couples here in the state of Montana 
requiring, asking that the state be required to create a domestic partnership registry and to grant to those couples the same rights and benefits and obligations that married couples are entitled to the minute that they sign their marriage license. So as your listeners are probably aware, a few things working against same-sex couples here in Montana. Yeah, a constitutional amendment. (laughs) A constitutional amendment that says that only marriage between a man and a woman will be valid or recognized. We are one of 30 states that, more than 30 states, that bans uh, same-sex marriage. Oh, the pile of bigotry. It is so lovely. <laughs> but there still are many other states who have found their way to recognizing civil unions or domestic partnerships. Or even full-on marriage. Six. Or even marriage equality, yes. <clears throat> and more on the way, for sure. More states on the way. Yeah, we have uh, three M's and a W, yeah. So Maryland, Maine, and... Washington. And who's the third M? Maryland, Maine, and... Minnesota has the constitutional amendment. Yes, yeah, four four voter measures in November. Uh, So Montana is not one of those states, though, that has uh, created a domestic partnership registry or civil unions. Very, very limited benefits that are available for uh, for state employees um, as a result of another ACLU lawsuit, actually. But that's about it. Same-sex couples here in Montana don't have, um, uh, don't have a way through current state law to be able to gain almost all of the benefits that are granted to opposite-sex couples. And I know a lot of people say, well, you know, you could just hire an attorney. You could write up a will. You could get a power of attorney. You could make sure that all of your paperwork is in order before something bad happens and you've got to head to the hospital. First off, no one should be required to carry around in their back pocket a ream of paper that is going to protect (laughs) them and their family every time that they step out the door. No, that's actually so in case I get hit by a bus. (laughs) Those are my legal documents. And to pay an attorney to do that. And also, there are just some things that you can't whip up an agreement for. You can't whip up an agreement for a tax break. You can't whip up an agreement to be entitled to your partner's... Inheritance. Yes, a default on inheritance or um, death benefits should the worst happen and your partner is killed on the job. Workers' compensation death benefits, they aren't going to go to a same-sex partner under our current state law. There are just things that you can't write up. You can't write up an agreement so that your partner can go and pick up your hunting or fishing license. (laughs) But if you're married, your spouse can go and pick that up for you. So all kinds of things in the current state law that there is just no way for a same-sex couple to be able to, to contract for. And there's just no good reason for that door to be shut to same-sex couples. No good reason whatsoever. You know, when lawyers like me use the phrase equal protection under the law, the 14th Amendment, what we're really talking about is that there should be a default rule that the state treats everyone the same. Unless there's yeah, a... It doesn't care what your skin color is, exactly. how long your hair is, what color your eyes are, what sex you are. It should treat you exactly the same. Exactly. And from time to time, the state is able to make a case to say, all right, in this one instance, we really do need to treat people differently. But the burden's on the state to make that showing. The, the, the burden is on the state to have a really darn good reason if they want to treat people differently. Well, in the case here where same-sex couples... We have clients who have been together for decades, raising families together, just as committed, just as loving, just as worthy of recognition. It seems so ridiculous that we have to defend this, but just so worthy of recognition as couples who can go down to the courthouse today and get married. And yet the state is saying, no, we're going to treat you differently. And the state hasn't been able to come up with that Gosh darn reason why they are entitled. (laughs) I try. Oh, if my mom ever hears this, I've got to make sure. (laughs) She'll probably ask you why you were talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) 
she knows I run with a pretty crazy crowd. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the interesting thing about it is that the Constitution is in direct conflict with itself because we have an equal protection clause that's part of the core Constitution, and then we have this amendment that is not that was passed and put into place. And I don't understand how an amendment how it got on the ballot because my understanding from our process is that. You can come up with anything, but it has to be validated that it wouldn't violate another part of the Constitution, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a really great point. And we've kicked this around um, a little bit just within the advocacy community, asking that same sort of question. How do you reconcile the fact that you have the, the I like to say, the anti-marriage amendment uh, that's in conflict with an earlier uh, provision in the Constitution, which is the Equal Protection Clause? Um, as far as the lingual wrangling of whether or not that amendment is even valid, I gotta say, you know, we can only bite off what we can chew at the moment. <laughs> and and for the moment, our lawsuit is focusing on getting uh, protections for our couples as quickly as possible. So that's why we were focusing on domestic mm-hmm. partnership. Um, I don't think it's any surprise to anyone that we oppose the marriage amendment. Uh, I'm of the opinion that it is in conflict with the Equal Protection Clause. I think at some point that's a discussion that would be really great to have in front of our state Supreme Court. And But even more importantly, I think the discussion that would be great to have is to have before the voters again, do you want to keep in our Constitution... Bigotry and discrimination. <laughs> this horrible amendment. <laughs> and it really is an outlier. When you think of what marriage, anti-marriage amendments are, they really are outliers about uh, when it comes to um, what our constitutions usually do. Usually our constitutions are limits on the government that protect individual rights. Mm-hmm. They are telling the government, you can't curtail someone's speech. You can't curtail their ability to practice their religion freely. But here we have an instance where we are telling the people of Montana, you can't enjoy rights. Really flips the whole idea of what the point of a constitution is, flips it on its head. So we would love to see the marriage amendment no more. And there are obviously several avenues how we could get to that point, but that is not what's on the table right now. We are focusing on making sure that our clients and every same-sex couple in Montana who wants to enter into a domestic partnership is given the opportunity to do so, that that door is opened up for them so that they can they can do that. Mm-hmm. So we end up with You've got that going on up at the Supreme Court, and it was already heard this year, but they haven't released their ruling, and they're coming up. Mm-hmm. It's weird because they're they're waiting so late in the year to release their ruling on it that it could very well affect their own elections. Yeah, so our hearing was April 13th, and... That was a Friday, wasn't it? <laughs> I think actually it was, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Mm. So it has been many, many months. In the meantime, uh, I know that the Supreme Court has had to take up a couple of other cases dealing with ballot issues that were going to be on the June or November ballots. And so I can understand why perhaps our case uh, has not gotten a decision while, while other cases that were heard after us have gotten a decision. Maybe just the timing of the election required the court to take up some other cases first. So I can understand that. We don't have any clue when we will get a decision. I like to joke that sometimes it takes longer to say yes to us than to say no to us in cases like these. So maybe it's a good sign. But really, we have no idea. Um, And as far as whether or not it would impact the election, obviously, if it came out before the election, we would expect that people in Montana would be talking about it and might want to have a conversation with various candidates about it prior to the election. I think we're fortunate that the tide in Montana, just like everywhere else in the country, really is shifting in favor of protecting the LGBT community. Uh, In 2006, when the marriage amendment was passed, we had over, or was that 2004? I think it was three. Three, it became effective in four. Because it wasn't when I came back. I came back in 2006. So it was earlier than that, at least. Yeah. 
But so <laughs> you can look it up. People Google it. <laughs> so when the marriage and when the anti-marriage amendment was passed, more than sixty percent of Montanans voted for it. Sixty-seven percent in two thousand and four, November of two thousand and four, voted for not terribly surprising the anti-marriage. But in the meantime, we have already seen a huge shift in the number of Montanans that support full domestic partnerships. Uh, just last June, we uh, did polling across the state of Montana that showed a majority of Montanans support full domestic partnerships, 53%. So it's a pretty significant majority. And that's in keeping with the trends that we're seeing nationally. The more that people in this state and across the country learn about the members of the LGBT communities that are in their lives that are treated unequally, the more that they learn about stories like our own plaintiff stories, stories of partners not being able to get bereavement leave to attend a funeral of a spouse's partner or, or spouse's uh, family, or being denied uh, access to um, medical or hospital information while a partner is undergoing medical treatment or being denied access to a partner's remains after that partner has died. The more that people in Montana and across the country hear these stories, the less tenable it is for Montanans and Americans to continue to support a system that denies protection to these families. So the 53% of Montanans that now support domestic partnerships compared to the 67% that voted for the anti-marriage amendment, uh, great news, not a huge surprise, and we're actually increasing that number. I would expect that, um, that we will see more and more candidates, especially, who just have to acknowledge the will of their voters in their own communities that scoring political points on the backs of the LGBT community is not popular anymore. And demonizing the LGBT community in Montana is not going to further your cause in most districts. So I think that we're going to start to see um, hopefully more legislators reflecting what we're already seeing in everyday Montanans' opinions, which is, let's go ahead and get rid of these discriminatory barriers. Oh, let's treat, let's treat people fairly. Let's yes, <laughs> it's a crazy idea. It's a wild notion. <laughs> oh, no, we can't do that. Uh, somebody get some sand. I need to rub it in your eyes. <laughs> so we've got that going on. Um, and then you've, got, you've been helping out amazingly with the uh, non-discrimination ordinance that's going on in Helena. And this is actually... One of the more interesting, and this is an, another part of the roots of why this show exists, <laughs> um, was the House Bill 516 mm-hmm. uh, last session that Chris Hansen brought in. Um, Please don't let her be elected again. Um, her the, the basics of the bill, which anybody who's listened to any of my shows, because I bring it up all the time, was uh, we're going to take away the city's rights to protect these people because we're hateful. Um, and uh, 516 was a horrible piece of legislation. It was poorly written. It was a disaster in the making for several reasons. Um, it didn't pass, thankfully. And then, um, so Missoula's ordinance stands. And then immediately after that, a bunch of people in town here in Helena decided that they wanted to pass one here. And uh, it's been going pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yes? It's been going slowly, but well, yes. I'm okay with slow. I'm okay. I'm not okay with bad. <laughs> <laughs> we are not okay with moving backwards. No, definitely not. And we aren't okay with uh, with no movement at all. And and actually, the the slowness has not been any reluctance on the part of the city commissioners to take on this issue. Uh, the slowness has just been the unfortunate events of uh, the city attorney retiring and another attorney within the city attorney's office leaving for another job and the city just being a little short-staffed in the one department that we needed to write the ordinance. (laughs) So the timing timing was just a little tough. Uh, But we do have a draft ordinance that the commission discussed at its administration meeting early in September 
And the commission is really diving right in and talking about specific language that they may want amended, things that they really like, things that they have questions about. So we are right in the meat of that campaign right now and having commissioners talk about what they want to see in an eventual ordinance. The good news is that in all of these discussions that the commissioners have had in their public hearings, we are seeing strong indications that a majority of the commissioners do support protecting members of the LGBT community through a non-discrimination ordinance. And at this point, we're just talking about detailed language. What is going to work best for the city of Helena? We can't just take what Missoula drafted. It was particular to Missoula and the needs there. We can't just take what the city of Salt Lake has in place, or the city of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And we want to make sure that the language that Helena adopts really um, works for us and works for the commissioners. Right, and part of the reason that you do uh, politics on a local level first is because it gives you a chance to experiment. Because you look at Salt Lake's ordinance, or you look at Kalamazoo's ordinance, or you look at Missoula's ordinance, and you see, okay, they did this right, this was great, and this isn't quite right (laughs) let's fix that and that's why you do it at a local level first before you do it statewide and it affects everyone and you haven't done it enough to know exactly how it's going to uh have its uh the unintended consequences (laughs) exactly and the good news is we have gosh close to 150 ordinances that we can look at there are over 140 cities and counties all across the country that have adopted non-discrimination ordinances like the one that Helena is considering. So it's not as if we're really trailblazing on this one. We have a lot of cities and counties that have laid the path in front of us and, and given us exactly what you were saying, a good picture of what works, what doesn't work so great, what are some things that we would want to change. So the city of Helena is in a great position to be able to adopt an ordinance that really will protect people here in the city. The goal of the ordinance is to prohibit discrimination in the areas of employment, housing, and public accommodations. And public accommodations just means essentially a business that's open to the public. So all that we're asking is that it be against city law for an employer or a landlord or a business owner to turn someone away to refuse to hire them to refuse to sell them a pair of shoes uh, just because of that person's sexual orientation or gender identity or expression. So the general concept, we're getting a lot of support for. People get this. People get that your sexual orientation... It's taken a long time, though. Taken a long time to get it drafted. No, 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 not the ordinance. I'm talking it's taken a long time for people to get it. Yeah. Um, I remember growing up here in Helena and going to school here, it was very much a... A discussion about gender was a binary issue. You know, there wasn't anything in the rest of it. And, you know, mm-hmm. they knew about gays and they knew about AIDS because the epidemic was happening, but they didn't quite have the concept of, you know, are they part of society? Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was this gray area that wasn't ever defined or discussed. And now that we're actually getting in there with lights and discussing it and, mm-hmm. you know, having it be a part of how everybody sees the rest of society, yeah, they're getting it because they've been exposed to it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and if you think that the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the federal non-discrimination law that we rely on to protect us in areas of race discrimination, sex discrimination, and a whole host of other classes, that was, what, less than 60 years ago that that was put into place. So the idea that states and cities could step in and recognize that there are other areas where people are being unfairly discriminated against and we should step in and fill that void. You know, we've only been at it for about about 60 years, which I know seems like a really long time, but, but we are making really great strides. And over the last 20 years, we've seen more than 20 different states that have included sexual orientation into their statewide non-discrimination laws. Uh, a few less have included uh, gender identity or expression, but there is still a significant number that include gender identity or expression. And like I said, more than 140 cities and counties that have now included it in, in an ordinance, that have included uh, those classes in an ordinance. So we are moving along. It's taken a while. Again, it has a lot to do with people sharing their stories. It has a lot to do with 
everyday Montanans coming to the realization <laughs> that yeah. they know someone who would be affected by this ordinance. Right. They, oh, and that's why it's so important that people come out. <laughs> it really is. And on the one hand, it's this is probably one of the more difficult things that I deal with when I'm thinking about how to reach legislators or how to reach voters. Obviously, the best way to change someone's heart or mind is to have someone that's affected by a bad policy to be able to share their personal story. On the other hand, as a privacy rights advocate, as a reproductive freedom advocate, as an LGBT equality advocate, there's a big part of me that says, it's none of your damn business. <laughs> why should a woman who's access reproductive care, why should a person who wants to marry uh, a person of the same gender, why should a person who's been kicked out of a business because they were holding hands with his boyfriend, why should those people have to parade their stories up in front of the rest of the state? Um, so it's it's a fine line. Um, I I I. That's why we ask for volunteers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And no, I don't think that people should have to parade themselves. But I can tell you, it is really helpful, and it really does um, does make a huge difference when you look at polling data as to. Um, whether or not someone supports LGBT equality issues, such a strong correlation between, yes, I support equality, and yes, I know someone who is gay, lesbian, or transgender. The two really do go hand in hand in a lot of ways. It's the number one way to change hearts and minds is for people in the community that's affected by a bad policy to share their stories. And thankfully... We are really fortunate here in Montana. We have so many brave people who are willing to come out and share their stories. Um, when I saw the people who testified on House Bill 516, uh, the hearings around House Bill 516 were some of the more frustrating aspects of the legislative session, like I said earlier. You know, when you yes. talk about people being turned away, that was happening on 516. Well, yeah, because they didn't want to hear from us. They just wanted to put us put us in a box and ship us somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't let that happen. People nope. that wanted to testify did not let that happen. You know, the day of the hearing in House Judiciary when people got cut off, we turned around, we got a mic, stood next to the statue of Jeanette Rankin, and everyone got a chance to talk. So we are so lucky that we have people that even when they're being shut out of committee hearings are willing to still stand up and be public and share their stories. I'm grateful for that. You have no idea, one, how much easier it makes my job, and two, how much strength I get from that. Those of us who lobby and and do this for a living, we're really lucky that we have the example set forward by people in the community by people who deal with this discrimination every day, for for those Montanans to drive over from Missoula, to drive out from Billings, to put their name as a plaintiff on our lawsuit, uh, that's an incredible privilege that we have to be able to litigate for them, to be able to lobby on these issues. So, thanks. <laughs> I'll so, send you a mini muffin basket when I get back to the office. So what else do you have going on? Because I know those issues because I'm intimately involved with mm-hmm. the ordinance, but I don't know what else is going on. What what other big challenges does the ACLU have coming up? Well, a big... Other uh, than the ones we've discussed, I guess. Yeah, the ballot measures that we're going to have in November. Of the five ballot measures that are going to appear on the November ballot, we have an opposed position on three measures. The first one is a parental notice measure. Um, your listeners might be aware that the state of Montana does have a parental notice law on the books that requires a minor to notify her parents before she can get an abortion. Your listeners may also know that it's completely unconstitutional (laughs) and that a state court struck down that law 13, 14 years ago. What 
proponents of this new measure want to do is essentially restart the litigation. So legislators have put onto the November ballot a whole new law that reenacts this unconstitutional law to put a parental notice measure in place. The big reason why it's unconstitutional is not because of you know, some out there sort of concerns about privacy. It's about the harm that it does to minors. It's unconstitutional to require a minor to jump through hoops that are going to cause her more harm than good. Uh, minors have a right to privacy in Montana, same as adults, unless we're trying to benefit them. There is no benefit to a parental notice measure. It would impact one patient that Planned Parenthood saw last year, one patient that Planned Parenthood saw last year that would be affected by this law didn't bring in her parents. For that one young woman who didn't bring in her parents, I can guarantee you there was some reason why she didn't. And to require her to talk to her parents, to bring them in with her, or to require her to try and find a judge that she could plead her case to instead, more likely than not, what is going to end up is that young woman is going to delay medical care. She may even self-harm. She may be in a situation where it's unsafe for her to share that information with her parents. So what this measure is going to do is, is make a bad situation for this teen where all that she really needs is to be able to talk to a doctor, get the counseling and the care that she needs. It's instead going to put her in harm's way. State court said that that was the case 14 years ago when they struck down our old law, and it continues to be the case today. This measure does more harm than good. Need to vote no on it. Okay. And that's a legislative referendum, or I like to call them the legislative abdications. <laughs> yep, an LR. And uh, one of the several measures that the legislature worked around the governor's veto and put on the ballot, which just means that voters get to now pull out their veto brand and fire it up. So hoping yes. for a veto on LR120. The next one is an anti-immigrant measure. The measure would say that certain state services would require Montanans to show proof of ID or proof of citizenship before they could get access to those services. And there's a, a long list of them. They include things like crime victim services, services for people with physical disabilities, uh, being able to get a plumber's license or a cosmetologist's license, you would now need to show proof of citizenship or proof of valid immigration status before you could get one of these services from the state. When you think of how many people are now going to be caught up in having to show their birth certificate, show extra paperwork, or get run through one of these federal databases that the federal government uses, um, so much money cost to the state, and so many people that are going to get caught up in this net when all they wanted to do is become a plumber. Come on, people. <laughs> Why are we trying to root out a problem that doesn't exist? Well, because we're being xenophobic and stupid. Those are some good words for it. Yeah, there, there definitely is um, uh, an idea that there are more immigrants here in Montana than there are many more undocumented immigrants here in Montana than there are, and that those immigrants are doing a disservice to us when really all the data shows that we benefit from having more immigrants here in the state for sure. So we're asking for a no vote on that one. That's LR121. And the last measure that we have a position on is dealing with medical marijuana. You know, back in 2004, I'm sorry, 2000 and why do I keep getting the years wrong? <laughs> oh, it's way okay. back when. Uh, the, I don't think it's that long. It's you know, 2006 maybe. But yeah, yeah. Medical marijuana passed by a citizen's initiative. Exactly. 62% uh, of Montanans said, said pot isn't a big problem. And they were right. Yep. And a majority of Montanans still agree that we should have a common-sense medical marijuana program. A majority of Montanans, according to latest polling data, don't approve of what the legislature did the last session. What the legislature did is they passed a bill that repeals the voter-approved law and replaces it with a law that now says that 
if you are going to grow medical marijuana for a patient, you can't recover your costs. You have to do it completely out of your own pocket, out of your own goodwill. You can't advertise, and you can only do it for three people, meaning that every patient is now scrambling to find a person that hasn't reached their three-patient cap who is willing to grow for them for free. Also, if you're a doctor, if you recommend medical marijuana to more than 25 patients in a year, triggers an investigation from the Board of Medical Examiners. So doctors are a little more leery about recommending needed medication, needed medicine to their patients. So it's just gone way, way too far. There were definitely some reforms and regulations that could have been put into place that would have benefited the original law, but to throw it out completely, throw out what the voters had approved by a 62% margin, by 62% of the vote, and to replace it with a bill that says, good luck, patients, hope you have luck finding one person who will be willing to grow for you for free. Uh, We're already hearing of thousands of patients who are not getting the medicine that they need. So IR-124 was placed on the ballot by patients' advocates so that voters could have a say on this really draconian bill that the legislature passed. We are asking for voters to say no to the legislature, say no on IR-124. Let's go back to what the voters approved uh, earlier. Let's rework it if we need to. But what the legislature did in 2011 went too far. It's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's one of those things where I look at the legislature and I look at these people and all I can think is, you know what would have improved the legislature last year? A lot of pot. I think, quite honestly, if we had made them all smoke a joint before they showed up in town, they would have been far more likely to be effective. I imagine for a lot of people who watch repeats of the legislative session, that probably would help them, too. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe make it a little more enjoyable to watch, a little more palatable. Exactly. I can't hear you, and I'm having Cheetos. It's the only (laughs) thing that's improving what you're saying right now. So... um, Okay, just to recap, everybody, it's Nikki Zupanic, and are you on Twitter? I am Nikki Zupanic, N-I-K-I-Z-U-P-A-N-I-C, all one, nothing in between, on Twitter. And then, of course, the ACLU website and the Montana ACLU website, we'll put those in the show notes, which if you're looking for them, everybody, you can find them at politictickboom.com and look for Nikki Zupanic, and you will see a whole list of links to all of the interesting stuff that we've talked about today. Um, anything else you want to tell people? I just want to say thanks. This huh. is the best job I've ever had, and I really appreciate the chance to keep doing it. So thanks, Montana. Awesome. Well, in Montana, thanks you. At, at least they should. And if they don't, well, I'll send them a muffin. <laughs> so um, anyway, thanks for joining us this week, and we will talk to you soon. Have a good one.